Hello and welcome to the Work Matters Podcast, where we discuss what matters at work and how to make it better. I'm Robert Richardson, here with Dr. Steve Hunt. Steve, what matters at work today? Self-leadership matters, Robert. What does self-leadership mean to you at work? That's a really interesting question, and I don't think I'd done a lot of deep thinking about that before we started talking about this podcast. It's sort of too easy to answer from the perspective of the job that I have today where I get a chance to think and train and deal with problems that require a lot of domain expertise. So I'm actually going to tackle it from a more challenging perspective, that of the Robert who was 20 years old. There are some jobs where everything feels like it's dictated to you. Right? I remember having my hand slapped 20 years ago working as a server in Wisconsin in a restaurant just for punching in a couple minutes late. And then later, I got my hands slapped again for punching in a couple minutes early. It turned out that that restaurant didn't want to pay me for the extra two minutes any more than they wanted to pay me to be late. But that's just kind of an example of the sort of rigidity that workers face in a lot of hourly environments. And despite the rigidity in that environment, I remember thinking that there must be a way to maximize how much money I make here. So I worked really hard to get good at being friendly while also taking on more tables than anybody else. So if you were having a hard time, I was there to take some of the load. Or in the pre-afternoon hours, people would always wanna take time off, right? They'd always wanna leave early because it was slow and they weren't making any money. So I'd always tell the manager I didn't mind because I knew that I'd get all the tables if we got slammed. I learned to get the managers and the hosts to work for me. Yeah, that's a, that's such an amazing story, Rob, as you're talking about. I really think it does capture this idea of self-leadership, which is like working within a world of constraints. It's finding ways in a world of constraints for you to, to, to move on. Throughout our work, there's so much of work is about being told what we have to do as opposed to what we want to do. And that creates really kind of a frustration and unhappiness. So I love your story. Did you finally decide to self-leadership that I quit? No, <laughs> no, no. I, I found a way to get creative, right? In, in Wisconsin, it used to be legal to pay servers $233 an hour, but I made that into a $25 an hour job to pay for school. And so here, I, I think, is the point. It's that that mentality was something that I got to bring to school and every job that I have thereafter. So to me, I guess self-leadership really means finding out what the rules are, understanding your own goals, and then operating within both to maximize the potential of everybody around you, including yourself. I think a lot of people really struggle with it in different ways, though. And I think it also takes, and not just knowing you, you know, you sort of level of achievement orientation and confidence naturally. But the guest we have to do is a famous person in HR. If you're an HR person, she's like famous for taking contrarian viewpoints and calling BS on a lot of stuff that BS should be called on. But she's also a super positive person, too, on how we can take work and make it better, which is what this show is about which is why I'm so excited to have her on the show to talk about this concept of self-leadership, which I think is critical to the fundamental thing of what work matters is about, which is about how to make it better. Lori also just wrote a book, great book called Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. So Lori, welcome to the show. What do you think of Robert's description? Is that self-leadership? Is that what you mean by it? Robert's story was so delightful, and just so you know, it's still legal to pay servers $2.35 an hour plus tips in almost all states across the nation. So it's not like much has changed in 20 years, 
except that your story demonstrates that self-leadership is the thing that can get people through a bad job, a difficult moment in their career and actually make it work for them. So I love that story. And Robert, next book I write, you're in it. <laughs> <laughs> you're launching on the road to fame. So, you know, Lori, thank you again for being on the show. We always start with the same question, which is why does this topic of self-leadership and sort of taking control of your career, why does it matter so much to you? Hmm. Well, I'd like to say that I'm just totally obsessed with human performance and potential, but I've got a more selfish answer, and that is everybody I know in my life, including me, has struggled with work. You know, my parents were just working class individuals. My mom had a GED. My dad had a high school diploma. My mom went on to become a police officer, and my dad worked at the phone company. Now they had a work ethic and were always putting food on the table and you know allowed me to become the first person in my family to go to university and so I'm really thrilled about that. But it's not as if they found any sense of fulfillment or purpose. They weren't working at that intersection of purpose and meaning that we know is so important. And then early in my career, I had student loans to pay off student debt and you know did a whole bunch of jobs in restaurants and blockbuster video and then went to work in human resources. And I didn't enjoy that as well. And it wasn't until I embraced this idea of individual accountability, professional detachment, kind of being a slacker from time to time and really building an infrastructure of well-being where I took care of myself first and then brought the good stuff to work that I really started to enjoy my career and actually thrive. As a person that's looked at this, what would you say is the first step? You're in a job and you're like, you know, this kind of sucks. I'm not happy. Yeah. What yeah. is the first thing that somebody should do? Well, Steve, the first thing they should do is not read a bunch of self-help books because I read 30 plus books before I wrote mine. And there's been no innovation in the genre since Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill back in 1937. And he was one of the original guys who said, if you believe it, it will come. The power of positive thinking is real. And there is something to be said for mindset. Mm -hmm. But for me, when really rethinking my career, and I had a vibrant career at a small, tiny company called Pfizer, just a teeny tiny pharmaceutical mm -hmm. company that's not in the news at all. You know, I had this amazing job with a lot of opportunities, but the culture, the opportunity wasn't right for me. And I really had to look at what I was doing, what I was bringing to the table daily. And so the first step for me and the first bucket in my book that I really tackle is this idea of well-being. And it's not going out and buying face masks and getting a massage, right? It's physical, emotional, and financial well-being. It's really table stakes. It's the pyramid floor of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you are not investing in the personal, there is no way you can elevate the professional. So really starting with this idea of how do I take care of myself? Am I being good to my body? Am I doing the most for myself so that I can be the best at work? Only you can control those choices and only you have domain in your life, in your physical, emotional, and financial life. And so once I started to embrace self-leadership and focus on well-being, the pieces started to fit in place. I think that's a really important point, that well-being in particular. You were talking about the self-help, but somebody once told me there's, I'm trying to remember who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Oh, that's people. Stephen Covey. Come on Stephen now. Covey. Yeah, that book actually, he wrote it by reading all the self-help books and summarized. So basically, if you just read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you've pretty much read every self-help book that has or ever will be written. Until betting on you. 
<laughs> which is not a self-help book. No, it's a career help book. I would not put it in that category because, Lori, where you write it from is a, is a perspective of having spent so much time with organizations, having spent time on both sides as an employee, but also a lot of time with HR leaders. I think people forget this sometimes, that particularly now, where we need people to be creative and service-oriented and collaborative, we don't do those things well if we're stressed and unhappy. It is very difficult to wear a plastic smile. Well, for sure. And, you know, nobody ever took on the world on four hours of sleep, mm-hmm. eating corporate food, and locked and sitting at their computer for 12 hours a day. That's not where top peak performance comes from. People you know, love, and admire in your own life are good to themselves. And so for me, I always ask people when they come into my coaching practice, Who do you admire, close up or from afar? What can we do to mimic the good stuff? You don't have to have a formal mentoring relationship with them, but you can be curious. You can watch how they operate in the world, and I can guarantee you they're not staying up until 4 a.m. on Instagram scrolling. They're not doom scrolling all day through the bad news. They've got a really great schedule because I believe that success is really built in the Outlook or Gmail calendar. So when I work with clients who are just really struggling at work, whether it's focusing on well-being or continuous learning or some of the other aspects of my book, we always start in the calendar because that's where chaos, if it exists, can be managed. I think that's so good. I think you start on that well-being. And it's funny, Robert, because we actually think about time clocks in the beginning. (laughs) But but I think well-being, is it starts with time. I remember talking to a sales leader that says they're coaching for salespeople. They said the one only resource you actually have in life is time. Everything else comes out of that. Going back to people that are out there working, you're saying, look, most companies, not all, They want you to be well-rested because you do a better job if you're well-rested and healthy. They also want you to be healthy because it costs them less on employee benefits. (laughs) So it's it's not altruism. It's selfishness that they want you to be well-rested. Yeah, capitalism is cutthroat. You know, I hear (laughs) though from HR leaders all over the place that I just don't have the time. And I Mm -hmm. get that because that is valid. Or I can't say no. If I say no, it will never get done. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of validity in there, which is why I teach this concept of professional detachment. Because what if you could say no? What if your job was really a client? What if your boss was a client? What if your colleagues were people you chose to work with? What if nobody had direct supervisory authority over you? What if they couldn't write you up? What if you actually chose to be there? How would that change how you said yes and how you said no? What if you had no fear because you were there because you wanted to be there? I think once you start to recognize that your job is not your identity, it's a place that you can go where you can contribute and be helpful, but it's not the entire core of your identity. You have a little bit more freedom to test in the small moments, saying no and setting boundaries. You know, you should never walk into your CEO's office and tell him to take this job and shove it for like a boatload of reasons. But someone is impinging on your time regularly, a colleague, someone from another department, you can practice saying no. You may not get it right all the time, but at least it's low risk. And that's so important. And again, we practice in the small moments to nail it in the big moments when it matters. 
I think that's that's so valuable. So you know, it's funny because these two things, the professional detachment and the well-being, go hand in hand. It's like because usually well-being is because we don't have enough professional detachment. We're not willing to say, "Look, I need to step away," and being okay in doing that.、And、I think the point you made too is is practice in the small moments. Don't let it just build up until you explode. You hit on a couple things. There's well-being. I remember we were talking before. You said there were four main things.、So、yeah.、Like、the first one is well-being, professional self-detachment. What are the other two? Yeah. Well, professional detachment is just a concept that runs core in all of my ideas. So the second idea I would really throw out there is this idea of continuous learning. Because if you're not learning, you're not growing, and if you're not growing, you're not thriving physically, emotionally, financially. And it's not just me who believes this. It's Harvard Business School. It's Cornell. It's Stanford. It's University of Michigan. There have been all these amazing studies that the happiest workers out there, the most engaged individuals on the planet, are learning something new. And unfortunately, many of us don't have time to learn anything new. That's what we tell ourselves, which is why professional detachment is so important. But we also get caught up in this idea that learning something new has to be about the job. And I really believe that all learning is worthwhile. And you both are experts on learning, right? This is something that's core and critical. We know that just the act of learning, even if it's random, even if it's about a hobby, makes us better learners. There's just so much upside to learning. And if we could only get 10 to 15 minutes a day on our calendar to watch a TED talk, to be curious about astronomy or quilting or anything we're interested in. That has such positive downstream effects for our entire lives. So I'm going to stop right there and ask y'all what you think about learning because I know you're passionate about it. Well, I, I think what you said there are a couple of things on, on that that are really worth pointing out. First of all, the learning on time. We had another show, Robert. Remember we were talking about、um, micro learning and the fact that actually some of the best learning occurs in like three minute increments. So thinking that you don't have time to learn is just that's not true. But the Other thing that I think is really important from having a successful career, not just a successful job, is that if you're not learning, you're really likely to have your job get automated or outsourced. I mean, I, somebody asked me one. This person was a、uh, technician in the medical field, and she said, "How can I keep from having my job losing my job to a robot?" And my point said, "As long as you're constantly learning something new, that means it's not repetitive. If it's not repetitive, they can't automate it." Learning is the path to relevance, and also it's just the path to make you happy. If you're looking to make a better job, most people don't have this sort of, for a variety of reasons, ability just to like quit and leave entirely.、Yeah. And Robert's story was great because Robert, as you talked about, you kind of in the situation and you found a way to make your job more what you wanted it to be through a lot of small changes. And I think that that point of you can craft your job this way through learning, but it has to start though also that you can't do this well if you're exhausted.、Mm. Learning takes a little more energy.、That's、so you've kind of got this: start with a sense of professional attachment. Don't get too、yeah. worked up, and you know you are not your job. Yeah. Although it's not fun to lose your job, it doesn't mean that it's you've lost meaning in life. Then go and focus on well-being and say, really say, I need boundaries because if I'm going to be creative and stuff, which is what self-leadership requires, have that. Then get into this learning mindset. What's、yeah. next? Okay, start to do learning, and that's like, but then you're like, okay, there's got to be a point where where do you go from that? Right. Well, you know, the fourth and final point of my book, you know, once we talk about self leadership, well being, continuous learning, is really to put this all together and start to take better risks with our career, because 
you know, you've got all this knowledge, you've got a little bit more confidence, you may want to test the waters, you may want to learn, grow, get a promotion, get a new job. And for me, one of the biggest lessons in my life was that every company I ever worked for turned out okay. They were fine. They existed even after big, terrible things happened because they had taken smart risks along the way. So I got a little bit curious and I'm like, what is the technique that's giving them the competitive advantage out there that they can survive failure, that it's not so catastrophic. And I stumbled on this very old stoic idea that's been embraced by corporations called the pre-mortem. And I'm going to stop right there. I don't know if either of you have heard of the pre-mortem. If not, I'll quickly explain it. Uh, yeah, please. I know what a post-mortem is. <laughs> When something fails, everybody loves to go and look back and assign blame. And then when you do it again, you forget about all the lessons you learned and you start with this relentless optimism. This next time we design a website, it's going to be perfect. Mm. Open enrollment's going to be great. Everybody's going to get the memo. And we know from history, things go wrong. So the pre-mortem goes like this. Before you do anything in this world, whether it's paint your kitchen or start a new project at work, software implementation, you ask yourself, how will this fail? Not how might it could, how might it fail? Might it coulda is a Southern thing. I'm sorry about that. Might <laughs> how, might, how might it fail? How could it fail? How will it fail? And you set a timer. You create a contained space, like a minute is enough and start the timer and you begin by writing all the ways you can fail. So let's say you want to interview for a really terrific job, but you're nervous. You ask yourself, how am I going to fail at this interview? Well, I may talk too much. I may not be a good storyteller. I may be sweaty. The technology may fail on Zoom. I may make terrible eye contact, right? You know how you're going to fail at this interview because you failed a million times before. When the timer goes off, you stop complaining about yourself, you stop this exercise and you look at your list. And if you go down the list and start to address the rational points of failure, the glitches, proactively before you do the thing you do, you give yourself a competitive advantage by over 30%. You can increase your chance of success by over 30% just by applying negative proactive thinking to a future topic. And the key is, you're actually going to do something about it. That's the beauty of the pre-mortem. I, I love this pre-mortem. And I think, you know, it's funny because one of the big things that you hear people talk about is, oh, you should always focus on the positives. And, they, you know, you always hear this saying, you know, if you're playing golf, don't think about not hitting it in the water because then you'll just hit it in the water. But this isn't that. This is like saying, think about, yeah, I could hit it in the water and then focus on what do I need to do to not hit it in the water. Right. You need to do you your know, drills. Yeah. yeah. So both basically be realistic about the challenges, come up with the strategy and focus on what you need to do right. But you can't really know what you need to do right unless you clearly define what could go wrong. So I love it. So, so, so kind of go through the four of these again. Yeah. So my philosophy on fixing work is to really start by fixing yourself. And you do that by embracing self-leadership, which is the art and science of individual accountability. And within that is this idea of professional detachment, right? The second component is well-being, physical, emotional, financial, because you can't do anything great in this world if you're not bringing your best to it. The third piece is learning, continuous learning, because if you're not learning, you're not growing. And what's the point? And then the fourth thing is to do everything with the viewpoint of the pre-mortem. You want to de-risk it. You want to 
figure out failure before you do it and that way you can improve your chances of success just like corporations do and what we've been talking about today is really being the boss of your life as robert said you know he was the boss of his life when he was serving at the restaurant even though he had a million other bosses he was truly individually accountable and that's what i believe if you attack it from this four quadrant perspective you will improve your life you'll improve work and you'll ultimately be a happier person. I think this is so, it's so great. And I think a couple of things too, I think also as you're doing this, as you're talking about, the stuff you're talking about is what most employers actually want from their employees. They want proactive, you know, they bring solutions, don't bring problems, but they want people that take initiative. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is kind of what we were talking about earlier. For example, companies want you to be healthy. Maybe not for yeah. the reasons you want to be healthy, but they do want it. Take advantage of that and start engaging. Well, Lori, thank you so much for appearing on the show. You know, we, we just always end with one last question. Is there anything that you'd recommend everyone do other than going out and buying your book? <laughs> yeah, I would love for everybody to just be a little kinder, a little gentler to themselves and start down this well-being journey. You know, if you're bringing it 80 hours a week at work, you're not really working 80 hours a week. You're probably working a good 32 and the rest is just mired in anxiety and drama. So have a look at that Outlook calendar, really explore where you're spending your time and be a little bit kinder to yourself because you know if you don't do it, no one else is gonna be nice to you. So start with yourself. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for appearing on Work Matters. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you know, Robert, maybe next time you and I will have a conversation. <laughs> I'm really absorbing everything. It's an uh, incredible conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much. So, Robert, you're remarkably quiet on that one, but I think it's because she was just, Lori just had so many great insights. I was just, you know, these, like so many of our podcasts, I wish we had more time. Um, what were the, some of the big things that you took away? Because I could tell you were just like absorbing stuff. What, did, what were the big things you absorbed? <laughs> I really was. Usually, um, you know, people are taken back if I'm, if I'm ever shy. And in this instance, you know, I really was just taking a number of notes, you know, so I'm, I'm just going to kind of read a few of them off because they were so telling. I didn't catch this quote perfectly, but I wish I did because it was so well said. She said, if you're not investing in the personal, there's no way you can be your best professional. And, uh, and that goes back to, you know, there are a few different guests here that have reminded me that I need to sleep more, right? Because I am totally that guy that will work until, you know, 2 a.m. because, you know, I've got four kids and it's finally quiet. Uh, so, you know, so I'm getting stuff done, you know, but, uh, but sleep really matters and taking care of yourself really matters and um and you're not getting the best out of yourself if you're working until two and getting up at seven right i can definitely relate to that she had a lot of things but one of the things i really liked was the view of learning as a source of energy it's a it's a source to allow yeah. you to navigate changes you know people have asked me how do you teach people to be adaptable and i'm like we're born that way if you look at babies the only thing babies know how to do is eat poop and learn and they're amazingly good at all three, as you probably know, having four kids. But learning is, is the human competitive niche. We're good at adapting to changing environments. It's what makes us human. And somehow we lose that. But when people are happiest, it's when they're learning new stuff. Yeah, I and, completely agree. Yeah, and, and to your point and to her point earlier, sometimes I don't think it matters what you are learning. Like just pursue a hobby. You know what I mean? Learn about astronomy. I love her example of astronomy because I'm a total astronomy geek and way to the rover to have landed yesterday. That was amazing. You know what? I took 30 minutes off of work and I watched it with my kids. I pulled them out of school because that was the kind of learning that they needed to get really excited about learning, period. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I think the, the other point too, that was the small changes, that little things, and your, your story so illustrated that. And by the way, Robert, it makes me wonder if I'm working for you now, because you remarkably <laughs> found a way to take your $2 an hour job and make it a $25 job by making the manager work for you. It's brilliant. <laughs> well, remember, it's raising all boats though. And that, yeah. you know, that's the real key. If you make the small changes, you're going to get things better. Yeah. And one other thing that I thought stood out to me a lot, I I love her risk management theory. This pre-mortem concept reminds me of inoculation theory, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, right? You know, in, in social psychology, there's this concept that you can protect someone from being persuaded by an idea, by presenting that idea ahead of time so that they can think about the counters to the idea, right? So then when they encounter that in the real world, they're not as easily persuaded. And in this instance, you're not as easily persuaded by your own anxieties. Yeah, and the, the, and you can't really focus on what you need to do right if you don't seriously think about what could go wrong. Yeah. Well, I know Lori also said one of the things we need to manage time and we need to manage time for our listeners. So Robert, do you want to take us out on this one? Sure will. So thank you to our guest, Lori Rudiman, for joining us today. Thanks to our editor and chief sanity officer, Morgan Gardner, and to Domi Caputo of SAP.io for making this show possible. Finally, thank you to Claudia Weller and the whole Open SAP team for supporting this and so much other educational programming for professionals. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we hope we earned a new subscriber and perhaps a quick rating wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be sure to get more information for you in our show notes. So if you're looking for more on Lori Rudiman or SAP, look no further than that. We look forward to seeing you on the next podcast because what matters? Well, today, self-leadership matters. Work matters. Thanks for joining us on the Work Matters Podcast. Yeah.